Thank you, Ricky and uh, Lee, for that ministry and music. Those of you who don't know our brother, Lee Richwine, uh, Lee and Joan and family worshipped with us for 14 years and uh, were an integral part of the life of our, of our church. Uh, since then, they have moved away, but we're always glad when they can come back and uh, thankful that today, not only they came back, but uh, ministered in music as well. We appreciate that very much. It's good to be emotionally prepared for various circumstances that we're going to face in life. I'm a grandparent with very young grandchildren. So that means after a long hiatus, I am back into Sesame Street and Barney and Friends. Barney and Friends is my favorite. Of course, that's educational TV, and there are all kinds of things you learn on Barney and Friends. You learn your numbers. I found that to be very helpful. You, uh, you learn your colors. You learn about various uh, emotions. And you learn about being prepared for various situations in life, such as Barney goes to the dentist. Barney goes to the doctor's office. Barney goes to the firehouse. I like going to the doctor's office the best. Barney comes in, and if you know, he's that big purple dinosaur. And uh, walks in, and there's a waiting room there. A nurse comes out to greet him. He's taken back. There's a doctor in his white garb and stethoscope and listens to Barney's heart and has him open his mouth to say, on oh, all those good things, with the intent of preparing children for the first time, they're going to go to the doctor. For the first time that they are going to walk into that scary situation. What are they going to face? What are they going to experience? Well, the episodes are intended to, to get them ready. So it's not such a scary experience after all. In the passage that is before us this morning, it's to prepare the disciples. Jesus is going to leave. Jesus is going to depart from them. He's going to ascend up into heaven. He promises them that he's going to come again, and when he comes again, he will receive them unto himself, so that where he is, there they would be also. But in the intervening period, while Jesus is away, things are going to get pretty tough for them. In fact, they're going to experience hatred and persecution. Jesus wants to prepare them for that hatred and persecution that they're going to experience. The key verse for us in this section this morning is John 16, verse 4. John 16, verse, uh, excuse me, John 16, verse 1. 16, 1. These things have I spoken to you that you may be kept free from stumbling. There is Jesus' intent. That's why Jesus gives us these words. These words have I spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. It's always good to know why people tell us the things that they do. Sometimes I wonder. People will tell me something, and, and I'll be in the back of my mind, I'll be thinking, why are they telling me this? What do they expect me to do with this? How am I to react to this? And sometimes I come right out and ask them, what do you expect me to do with this information? You expect me to talk to somebody? You expect, what, do you, what do you expect? And a lot of times they'll say, well, nothing. I just want you to know. Here we know the expectation of Jesus. Why did he tell them these things? He said, I'm telling you these things so you don't stumble. So that you don't abandon the faith nor fail or neglect your duty 
in being witnesses for me. So these things I tell you so that you don't abandon your faith nor neglect your duty in being witnesses for me. So we want to look at the things that Jesus told them so that they might be a help not only to the disciples but to us. What kinds of things do we need to know so that we won't abandon the faith nor neglect our duty in being witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first, the disciples needed to know the range of the hostility and persecution that they would face. Look with me at John chapter 16, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. They're going to make you outcasts from the synagogue. John 16, 1-4 is a concluding statement to John 15, 18 and following. It's a concluding statement in the form of recapitulation, which is review. And so it very precisely is going to describe the kinds of things that were said in verses 18 to the end of the chapter in John 15. And so Jesus says they're going to face hostility and persecution. But it's going to be on a range. They, it says, are going to be experiencing outcasts from the synagogue, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Being put out of the synagogue is going to mark a real change for the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had begun his earthly ministry in the synagogues. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it reads, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. It was Jesus' custom. It was Jesus' habit. It was Jesus' modus of operandi. He would go into the synagogues and teach concerning himself and his role as Messiah. Towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there had begun a, a degree of hostility towards Jesus. He still got the crowds, but obviously the scribes and Pharisees were upset with him and ultimately it leads to the crucifixion. It's just hours away from the passage that we're in. But Jesus begins to experience some resistance in the synagogues. In John chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but it's the story of the healing of the man who was born blind. And this man who was born blind is going to be healed by Jesus. And the leaders of the synagogue begin to question the parents of the man that's born blind. Because they don't believe that the man really was born blind. They don't really believe that this miracle had taken place that was described. So they, they ask the parents, what about this, this son of yours who is supposedly born blind and now he sees? What do you have to say about that? In John 19.21 we read, but how he now sees, this is the response of the, of the parents. We do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone would profess Jesus to be Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue. Now, this is a local decision. And the already agreed speaks to a foreshadowing of what's going to take place in the future. In this instance, already, even before Jesus' death, even before the crucifixion, in this particular local synagogue, they already said, 
If anybody's going to follow Jesus, you're out. And they cast out of the synagogue the man who was born blind. Because he's going to identify with Jesus Christ. Jesus said the time's coming. Well, that's going to become universal. A time is coming in which all Christians are going to be banished from the synagogue. Now, it's going to take a little time. Even in the public ministry of the Apostle Paul, he regularly goes into the synagogue to teach. Acts 18.4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. That's referring to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So even in the time of Paul, Paul every Sunday, every, excuse me, every Sabbath day, every Saturday, was in the synagogue teaching and preaching about Jesus Christ. Jesus says, but the time's coming when they're going to cast you out of the synagogues. It's not going to happen. And as the apostles experienced more and more, they found more and more doors closing to them in the synagogue. And yes, in fact, the day came in which if you identify with Christ, you were going to be put out of the synagogue. It did happen. There was a great significance in this being banned from the synagogue. It would affect the disciples in two ways. First, it meant that their religious teaching would be rejected. I'm going to save that and come back to it. The second meant that socially they would be shunned. And being an outcast of the synagogue, it meant that they were no longer viewed as Jewish. They were likened to the pagans. It meant that any Jew in good standing would not have any commerce with them. They were fishermen. If they went back to fishing, it had been pretty hard for them to sell fish if they're not a part of the synagogue. Couldn't do business with them. They were pagans. But more than just a financial implication for, this, for the disciples, it meant they'd be shunned, be rejected by their loved ones, by their friends. They'd be social outcasts. They'd be not welcomed. They couldn't sit and eat meals with people who were part of the synagogue. It meant that they were going to experience a totally different way of life than what they had known it. Not the persecution that later is spoken of where they're going to give their lives. Now much more subtle. Much less stringent in some ways. But yet a burden to bear. But things are going to get bad and they're going to go to worse. For we find in verse 2 it says, They'll make outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming. It's going to get worse. An hour is coming that everyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. Each one of the apostles, with the exception of John, who's the writer of this book, every one of them is going to die there for their faith. Every one of them is going to be a martyr. Everyone, without exception. John being the lone exception. And John dies on the Isle of Patmos in exile. He dies a prisoner, if you will, in isolation on the Isle of Patmos. Things are going to get bad and they're going to get worse. Jesus tells them what they're going to face. You know, as we read through the book of John, obviously we don't want just to have a history lesson and learn about what is true for the apostles. We always look for application of, 
of what we are to take away from passages such as this, as we think about this particular verse, we find that there is indeed a range, as I said, of persecution, of, on the one hand, being put out of the synagogue to the place of actually having to shed one's blood and give one's life for their faith. Religious persecution ebbs and flows. It comes and goes to greater and lesser extents. And it ebbs and flows over time and in locale. So that in our country, we know very little religious persecution. There are places on the face of this earth, many of them Islamic nations, in which if you're going to identify with Jesus Christ, it is life-threatening. It's a capital offense. You can die. And there are Christians today, today, around the globe, that are dying because they identify with Jesus Christ. That is alien to us. We don't experience that. We don't sit here in fear and trepidation that the police are going to come in and haul us away. That we're going to be put on on trial or just summarily executed. Those things don't happen to us. But it is helpful to realize what we're going to face in our Christian faith. And I think it's helpful to realize for the disciples that things were going to get worse. There is a very real possibility that in the United States things could get much worse than what they are now. It's pretty universally accepted among Christian sociologists that we are living in a post-Christian era. Let me say that again. Right now, we are living in a post-Christian era in the United States. What does that mean? Well, it means that we moved from a place in time in which Christianity was enjoying a favorable position. That there was a sense that there was a time in our country that it was actually advantageous to be a Christian. Some of those advantages can be seen in even the fact that the church is still tax exempt. We have a favorable status. We don't have to pay property tax on the property that the church building sits. You enjoy the tax exemption of being able to give a charitable contribution to the church and having that removed from your income so you don't have to pay tax on those charitable gifts. Things are changing. Things are changing. Most of the tax exemptions that exist for things other than churches themselves, such as religious institutions or bodies or programs, their tax exempt basis is not on the fact that they are a religious institution, but rather that they are a nonprofit organization. For example, Pinebrook Bible Conference enjoys tax exemption, but they do so because they are a nonprofit organization. 
not because they're a religious organization, not because they're owned and operated by the Biofellowship Church, but they experience a tax-exempt status because they're a nonprofit organization. This whole issue of taxation is becoming more and more of an issue in our society. There are a lot of communities now that are actually zoning against churches. They are presenting zoning laws that are making it much more difficult for churches to be built in their communities. Parking reasons, traffic reasons, and a large part of it is this whole tax exempt issue. Because they're not contributing to the local budgets of their communities. They're seen as being uh, a burden rather than to be a help. There are other ways in which you can see that the landscape is changing in a post-Christian era. There was a time, some of you can remember, when there was Bible reading and prayer in public schools. I can remember back to when I sat in a classroom and the Bible was read every morning. And it was started with prayer. In 1963, the Supreme Court said that was illegal. It couldn't be done any longer. There was a time that there were blue laws in this country. Blue laws in the state of Pennsylvania. So that commerce could not be conducted on a Sunday. Stores could not be opened. You know, for a younger generation, all that seems really bizarre. Because things have changed dramatically. And I'm only using this as an illustration that, in fact, things are changing. We're moving from a Christian to a post-Christian era. So that now, in some places, alcohol can't be sold on Sunday. But for the most part, Sunday is like any other day. Sunday doesn't experience a special place in our community. I can remember a time when there was no such thing as sports on Sunday. Now, of course, professional sports abound. Uh, you can remember uh, the movie uh, that uh, came out, and I can't remember it, but you can. What's the movie? Uh, the, Eric Lytle, that he couldn't run on. Chariots of Fire, thank you very much. Shows I should never depart from my notes. Uh, but uh, Chariots of Fire, where uh, uh, Eric Liddell w- would not run on a Sunday. Most people today would look at that and not understand that, that conviction or that uh, mentality whatsoever. Because things have changed. They've, they've changed rather dramatically. One person is illustrated in this way. There was a time when a, a clergyman would walk down a street on a Sunday and if children saw him. Uh, they'd be playing, they would run in the house because they'd be embarrassed because they weren't going to, to church. And so they would hide themselves from the clergyman. Then came the time when the clergyman would walk down the street and the children would just pay him no attention. Then came the time when the clergyman walked down the street and the children began to yell at him and mock him and call him names. A progression. A progression. Let me tell you about another progression. Because... It's one that's easily missed, easily hid. There have been a number of polls about Christianity and how many Christians are there in the United States. What percentage? What percentage are regular churchgoers? Gallup poll is probably the most famous for conducting these surveys. And there's a lot of debate. 
as to what the real numbers are. Very recently, uh, two individuals, two researchers, Kirk Hathaway and Penny Marler of Sanford University, did a study on church attendance. And they did a different approach. Rather than to survey people and say, how often do you go to church? They looked at church statistics. They looked at what churches were reporting. How many people regularly attended churches. And they did a massive study to determine how many people were in church on any given Sunday. The results of that survey are are really pretty interesting. There are over 333,000 churches in the United States. Over 333,000 churches. Out of those 333,000 churches, computing all their average attendances, it was discovered about 20% of the population is in church on a regular basis. 20% of Americans regularly attend church. Here's the plot thickens. There are 333,000 churches, a little more. 10% of those 333,000 churches, or 33,300 churches, give or take, have an attendance of over 350 people. Okay, so 10% of churches have an attendance over 350 people. 90% less than 350. So we're part of the 90%. Our average attendance is less than 350, uh, less than uh, 350 people. I'm going somewhere with this. of Americans attend church on a regular basis. 10% of the churches in America are over 350 people. More than half, more than 50% of the people that attend church regularly are in those 10% of the churches. Okay. Let me say that again. Over half of the people in the United States that that attend church are in those 10% churches that are over 350 people. 33,000 out of 333,000. Why is that significant? Why am I making a point of that? It's not in any sense to deride the megachurch. It's to bring something to our attention that needs to be brought to our attention because it's easily lost. And that is that the numbers of Christians in the United States are declining dramatically. Drastically. There are more churches closing than churches opening. And we are lulled asleep Because there are relatively a handful of churches, 10% of the churches that are growing like gangbusters. But their growth is not coming through conversion. Their growth is coming as a result of people moving 
from these smaller churches to the larger churches. And again, my point is not to somehow deride the mega church. My point is simply this. They're not growing by conversion. And I'm not just singing them out because the 90% aren't growing by conversion either. My point is less and less people in the United States are being converted every year. The Christian population is diminishing. The Christian population is getting smaller. And I tell you, that's going to have incredible, incredible ramifications for us. The Christian experience that we have is not going to be the Christian experience that our children have and our grandchildren have. I knew what it was like to grow up when stores were closed on Sunday. My kids don't have a clue of that. I knew what it was like to sit in the classroom and hear the Bible read. My kids don't have a clue of that. I'm telling you, in the future generations, it's going to get more and more and more difficult in being a child of God and being a Christian and identifying with Jesus Christ. Things are going to get tougher. Let's move on. Let's move on. The disciples needed to know the reason for the hostility and the persecution that they were going to face. Verse 3 of John 16. These things they will do. Why? Because they have not known me or the Father. Because they have not known the Father or me. Now, as you look at the preceding verses, there are actually a number of reasons that Jesus gives why they are going to experience uh, hostility and persecution. So I'd like to look at them. The first, Jesus explains that the hatred that the disciples will face is a continuation of the hatred directed towards Jesus. Look at John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We are experiencing, we will experience, when people reject Jesus Christ, they're going to reject us. We should not be surprised when people hate Jesus Christ, they're going to hate Christians. One of the things that I learned early on in life, very young in the pastorate, I began to realize that people are going to have problems with God, they're going to have problems with the church. If people are going to be out of fellowship with God, they're going to be out of fellowship with the church. If people are going to find fault with a God who is perfect, how much more are they going to find fault with a church and a pastor who's imperfect? It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that when people are out of fellowship with God, they don't have a high view of the people of God. Secondly, the hatred that the disciples will face is because in identifying with Christ, they are different from the world. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's a difference that exists between the child of God 
and a person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that difference is a source of contention. It is a source that sometimes leads even to the point of hatred and persecution. Thirdly, the hatred that the disciples faced is due to the rejection of Jesus' teaching. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They reject the teaching of Jesus. And because we teach what Jesus taught, they reject us. Timothy says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. When they won't listen to what the word of God has to say. We live in a day and age in which the word of God is being rejected. And churches are compromising. In a desire to be more palatable to what people want, there's less and less preaching and teaching the Word of God. We need to avoid and be aware of that danger. Fourthly, the hatred that the disciples will face will result from a misplaced religious zeal. Look with me at John 16.2 again, the recapitulation. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. Now these words. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. There's a time coming when everyone that kills you is thinking that they're offering service to God. They think that they're on God's side by putting you to death. Now, historically, we can understand that pretty readily because we have the incredible example of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in a religious fervor and a desire to protect what he understood as the truth, persecuted the church relentlessly. Was responsible for the death of many, many Christians. Stood beside Stephen at his martyrdom, consenting with those that took the life of Stephen. Paul was a persecutor of the church, and he did it out of religious zeal. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. Paul writes, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. This is the primary reason that the disciples will be persecuted. They'll be persecuted out of religious zeal for God. What is essential in understanding this is John 16.3. If you mark your Bible, I'd put a big asterisk by this verse. This is a verse that's absolutely essential that, that you don't lose sight of. In this passage and in all of life. John 16.3. And these things they will do. This is the ultimate explanation. This is the, the pinnacle of why they're going to experience persecution and hatred. Verse 3, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. They have not known the Father or me. Now, this is why it's so critical. Okay? This is why it's so essential. Because Jesus is saying, the reason they do this is not because simply they don't know me. But the reason they do this is because they don't even know the Father. Because we're talking about the Jewish people. We're talking about 
religious zealots. We're talking about people that have dedicated themselves to the scriptures. We're talking about scribes. We're talking about Pharisees. We're talking about moral people. We're talking about upright people. We're talking about people that pray. We're talking about people that memorize, not the Quran, the Old Testament. We're talking about people that have zealously tithed, given, sacrificed. We're talking about incredibly religious people that Jesus says, don't know the Father. Not just that they don't know me. They don't know God. They don't know the true God. They don't know the triune God. They don't believe in the real God of the Bible. Now, look with me in a cursory fashion at John 15, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Why? Because they don't know the one who sent me. Verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. He who hates me hates my father also. Verse 25. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. He who hates me hates my father also. Verse 24. If I had not come among them and done the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. Now this phrase. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Repeatedly. In these, these brief verses, Jesus links hatred with him with hatred of the Father. Hatred of him with hatred of the Father. You see, it was absolutely essential that the apostles got that. Because they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue... And I said there were two implications for that. One of it was social, economical. They were going to have the hardships and the difficulties of being shunned. But the other is that they're going to be rejected on the basis of a theological understanding. They're going to be branded as heretics. They're going to be branded as blasphemers. They're going to be told by the religious community what you believe is unacceptable. What you believe is unbiblical. What you believe must be silenced. It can't be acceptable. Jesus makes it clear repeatedly if you don't have me, you don't have the Father. If you don't have me, you don't have the Father. That's where the grounds for religious persecution begins. That's where the seeds are sown. 
Jesus said what is in our day very controversial. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You have no relationship to God if you have no relationship to Jesus. I tell you, that's unacceptable in our culture. All you have to do is listen to should be in my notes. I can't think of his name. He's on channel 44. He's a talk show host. Wears glasses and suspenders. Name that man. Larry King. Thank you. Yeah, see, it's good. This is, this is group participation Sunday. Okay. Larry King. Larry King. And Larry King loves to get guests on his show. And say, do you mean to tell me that if people don't believe in Jesus, they're going to hell? And he's going to start talking about all the religious people that do good, who serve humanity, who sacrifice. Do you mean they're going to hell? Boy, it's tough for them to go up and say yes. It's tough to say that. Twenty percent of the people in the United States go to church on a regular basis. Christianity is declining. There are religious sects, S-E-C-T-S, in our country that are increasing. They're growing. The Muslim faith is growing in the United States. A greater percentage of the pie are going to other faiths, other religions. It means it's going to be harder and harder to say to people, unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you have no relationship with God. In most people's minds, all that matters is you believe in God. Oh, I believe in God. I pray. What religious group doesn't pray? What religious group doesn't believe in a God? But identify with Jesus Christ, that's a whole other story. There are occasions in which I am asked to pray publicly at civic celebrations, organizations, etc., etc., and they'll contact me and say, Reverend Reed, we'd like you to uh, give us an invitation. Would you be willing to do that? And for the most part, I say yes. On one occasion, I was asked to uh, open in prayer, and I said I would. And it was a large community gathering. It was a non-religious event. And uh, the person that was in charge came to me and said, Now, Reverend Reed, you realize that there's a great deal of diversity in this group. I said, I certainly realize that. And they said, uh, so, um, you won't pray in the name of Jesus, will you? Uh, you're welcome to use God all you want, but please, don't pray in the name of Jesus. I said, that's the way I pray. I said, take it or leave it. 
That's what I do. If you don't want me to pray, I can understand that. I won't pray. But if you want me to pray, that's what I'm praying. The ball's in your court. You either call me up or you don't. Well, that puts them on the spot because your name's in the program. So what are they going to do? All right? In this particular instance, they backed off because it was in their court. If you don't want me to pray, call somebody else. Usually, when I get those kind of restrictions, I get them up front. They'll say, uh, we'd like to come and and, uh, preach, but please, you know, don't pray in the name of Jesus. And I'll say, well, I can't accept on that that grounds. Thank you very much. It's pretty cordial. It's pretty cordial. But the day is coming in which it won't be cordial. The day is coming in which that's becoming much more offensive. Talk about God all you want. But don't talk about Jesus. Talk about having a relationship with God. But don't talk about placing personal faith in a Savior who delivers us from sin. Jesus repeatedly said in this passage, if they hate me, they hate the Father. Please understand that any Jewish person would have been outraged by that statement. Outraged. How dare you say I hate God? How dare you? I've devoted my life to God. I tithe. I sacrifice. I pray. I live a moral life that is superior to your own. Who are you to tell me that I don't love God? Is it any wonder that they're going to be hated? Is there any wonder that they're going to be rejected? Is it any wonder that they're going to be shunned? Is it any wonder that people want to silence them? Who are these kooks that talk about a resurrected Jesus? Jesus said, I want you to know these things. So when the time comes, you don't stumble. So when the time comes, you don't either, one, abandon your faith, or two, Refuse to identify with me. You need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. We need to prepare ourselves to live in a post-Christian era in which we and our children are going to rub more and more with peoples of other faiths. They're going to move in next door to us. We're going to get to know them. We're going to love their children. We're going to appreciate the kindnesses they show to us and the favors that they do. We're going to find that in many instances they are moral, dedicated, hardworking people. We're going to learn to appreciate their customs and realize that in many ways they are just like us. We're going to learn that we need to be socially tolerant. 
And not just tolerant, but accepting and give approval. Much of which is good and healthy and right. There's no basis for us to look down on other people. Or to discriminate in our attitudes and behaviors towards them. But we must understand. There's but one true and living God. He's a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that God is unique to the Christian faith. And every other worshiper of a God is not the worshiper of that God. And Jesus said, No one comes to the Father but by me. And as unpopular as it is, it means everyone who doesn't place faith in Jesus Christ is lost. I say that with no pride. I say that with no hint of animosity towards anyone who doesn't believe. I say that with a heavy heart. There are a lot of kind, zealous, quote-unquote, good people. They're going to be lost. There's going to be incredible pressure on us to be silent. To not bring up these unpleasant things. Not much danger in us going to prison. But becoming social outcasts. Of offending people that we like, we admire. Of having people in authority disapprove of our conduct or our speech. Oh, that, that's already happening. That's already taking place. And the church is already stumbling. Christianity is decreasing in the United States of America. We need to be aware of it. We need to stand firm. We need to shoulder what is for us much more in kin with being put out of the synagogue than facing death. There are places on the face of this earth where people are facing death. We are not facing it here. But we're facing being put out of the synagogue. Being faced and being put out of the mainstream of our culture, of our society. We're becoming a minority. We're becoming segregated. Where once Christian thought was sought, it's now tended to be silenced. Where once you enjoyed a positive reputation by being a Christian, now you're viewed with suspect. Where once in our society and culture, the pressure was on you to be in church on Sunday. That's what everybody did. They went to church on Sunday. 
Now the pressure is of all the other things to do on this single day than go to church. We are already in a post-Christian era. What are we going to do about it? Jesus said, I tell you these things so you don't stumble. Quickly, verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. All that Jesus said will and has come to pass. Why do we need to know that? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. But these things that I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? I want to move your attention from what I've just said to, I'm going to be with the Father. Why? Because, not only is it true what I'm saying about persecution, and I want you to remember I said it when it happens, so that you will remember what I said about going to the Father and my coming again is true also. That's where our focus must be. Jesus said he's going to the Father. Jesus said he's coming again. Jesus said he's going to take us to himself. Every time we look at this world and see it getting worse and worse, may it remind us that Jesus told us that would happen, and may it remind us that ultimately what Jesus said is, I'm coming back. And if you can keep in mind that he's coming back, it puts in perspective this world getting worse and worse. He's in control. Our duty right now is to reach this fallen world. Don't let people silence you. Speak up about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done. Lead others to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.